Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road, where we are looking at the world of Jesus. But for the next few episodes, I want us to look at the stories of Jesus, and in particular, one iconic story that we call parables. I once heard it described that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, which means that Jesus would use everyday things in order to reveal the kingdom of God that he said is right under our noses. He didn't invent the form. It was a common rabbinic tool to teach people about God's love and what God expects uh, from us by using ordinary things uh, to become a Bible. A couple weeks ago, I had a real thrill. It's pretty low-tech fun. Actually, I got to walk between a village called Chorazin and Galilee to Capernaum, Capernaum being the headquarters of Jesus' ministry, really the house where he did most of his stuff. And Chorazin is a city where he preached. Scholars like to call this triangle between Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum the evangelical triangle because so much of the Gospels and so much of the teaching happened there. So I walked this four-kilometer little trail just through the fields of Galilee, which was amazing because I got to see so much that looked like a parable. I saw wheat that grew in the fields and thorns to choke them. I saw farmers' huts where they would go forth and scatter seed. And In the distance, I saw the lake of the Sea of Galilee and a city on a hill that cannot be hid. So for Jesus, the land is Bible, and the kingdom of God was to be found in stories or parables. So for this reason, I want us to leave Mark's gospel for just a couple of episodes and go over to the gospel of Luke to a story that's only told there, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I believe this is the iconic uh, parable, uh, maybe that and the that and the prodigal son and his brother. Uh, but I want to look at this one, remembering that gospels or any of the gospels are not newspaper recordings, but rather artful retellings of something to draw us into a truth. So for that reason, I want to remind you that Luke's gospel is just a little different than Mark. First of all, it's got all Mark in it. It's got about 90% of Mark in it. So Luke had Mark's gospel and remembered all those things that, that, that Mark remembered about Jesus and then reordered it and added some stuff that he knew or he was told so that Luke's gospel has a different shape. Luke's chapter 9, Jesus decides to go to Jerusalem for a final time to die. He knows this will be his last journey back to this place that he's traveled every year for his entire life. He knows that there will be a showdown. He knows that there will be crucifixion before rising again. He knows that the nails will hurt. And for this reason, everything past the turn, if you will, uh, when Jesus sets his face to travel to Jerusalem for this final time, then then the stories are shorter. Jesus is a little more terse. Uh, the land is dangerous. The neighbors are threatening. Uh, it's a little more. It's a little more dark, if you will, uh, in the second half of the way that Luke tells the story. And the very first parable that Jesus teaches on this final leg of his of his earthly life is the story of the Good Samaritan. That's what I want to say first. I mean, this is why we're going to read it in just a minute. So let me just read the story to you, remembering that sometimes we know a story so well we don't know it. And we'll see if we can't dig into the places and the people and find some meaning for us. Luke chapter 10, beginning with the 25th verse, ending with the 37th verse, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'll read it. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. 
Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him, went away leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to that place, he saw him, but passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. And he went and he bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. And then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now we tend to think of the Good Samaritan as just a nice person. We have Good Samaritan laws. We use the word to describe charitable people, charitable people rather. But this is a radical story, and it answers the question, who is my neighbor? The answer is everyone. So our strategy now is to break down and look at the players and the places and find some new meaning. And I'll start, I'll go back to the land itself. So last summer, I walked this trail between Capernaum and Corazin, and it was dead summer, which means that it's hot and there are brush fires there. And Jesus would tell stories about about plants withering in the sun. In the Galilee in the summertime, it's over 100 degrees every day and everything dries up pretty good. But I have had, I have taken walks in the wintertime where it's green and cool and it rains almost every day and the fields are, are yellow with mustard, which is fascinating to me because Jesus would say that our faith is like a tiny little mustard seed but can grow and can grow and can grow, reminding us again that he would use whatever is front of him. And on this walk through a field of mustard. I was not alone on this particular trip with a really, really lovely friend named James, who's an Israeli guide and a really good guy and a creative uh, thinker. And as we were walking, he pointed out something that he'd noticed about the earth beneath our feet, that the land itself is still a Bible. The rocks in the region of Galilee are black rocks. They're basalt rocks, which means that Galilee sits in the depths of the Jordan Rift Valley, which is the lowest place on planet Earth. The black basalt rocks remind us that it's a very seismic area. Earthquakes are not only common, some have been historic, and tremors happen all the time. It's a very shifty kind of place. But Jesus, according to my friend James, and I love this thought, did great on black rocks. He did great on black rocks. Everywhere he went where they had black rocks, he had crowds follow him. He would feed 5,000 people with a few morsels of bread and a couple of fish. He would heal blind people, and he would have crowds thrilled to his teaching, and he would still a storm, and on and on and on. And on black rocks, Jesus would experience what sometimes we call the Galilean Spring. But yellow rocks are something else. Yellow rocks are the yellow limestone of Jerusalem, where, where he was not appreciated to be the rock star that he was in the Capernaum uh, area. Uh, Yellow rocks would be the place where enemies would circle him. Yellow rocks would be the land of Nazareth where people couldn't see that Joseph's son who grew up amongst them uh, would be the Lord of heaven and earth. But yellow rocks, he wouldn't do so well. And my point is this, this parable of Jesus 
telling the lawyer about the Good Samaritan is a yellow rock parable. It's not in friendly territory. And we're told that a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. So he's already on his heels, right? And while it's tempting to tell a lawyer joke here, and those are plenty, and to snicker, for Jesus' Jewish audience, a lawyer was actually seen as a good guy. But there's a little bit of a mystery when it comes to this term lawyer, and it has to do with Luke's gospel and the authorship of Luke. There is a Greek word for lawyer, nomikos, which literally means learned in the law, but it's, there's not a word corresponding for it in the Hebrew language. It, it's, not, it's not a Hebrew word. So it's related to the ministry of the scribes and the Pharisees, but I believe it has a different function. You see, Luke's audience was a Greek-speaking Gentile audience. Luke was a Greek-speaking Gentile person. And although we really can, can never know for sure who authored the Gospels, in fact, we really don't even have a first edition of any of them, what might be called an autograph, we can't really know archaeologically or scientifically who Luke really was. I believe of the four Gospels, we do have one tantalizing clue embedded within the text itself. Okay, this is a fun thing to remember, is that of the four Gospels, only one has a sequel that made it in our Bibles, and that's the Gospel of Luke. So the book of Acts is the sequel uh, to the Gospel of Luke, sort of like Godfather Part Two. And it's a shame that John sits in the middle of them in the order of the library, because sometimes we can forget that Acts is merely a continuation of the story. And so in, in Acts 1 through 15, the author, Luke, Uh, tells the stories of what happens in the early days of the church. They went to Cyprus. They went to Jerusalem. They went to Peter's house. They did this. They did this. And right up through Acts chapter 15, they are traveling up to Macedonia. But when they get to Philippi, which is a city in this eastern part of Greece, in this Macedonian region, it shifts from the third-person plural, they, to the first-person, we. We went into the place of prayer. We went into the marketplace. It goes from they to we, which reveals to us who Luke was, a friend of Paul's, and where Luke was in a place far from the world of Jesus. So Luke would have to be careful and lay things out so that the, so that the Greek-speaking Gentiles reading this gospel would understand the challenges uh, that Jesus might be up against. There's a good a good aside here that that'll that'll give you an idea of what I think lawyers do in Luke's gospel, and that is Luke's treatment of of the buildings that they lived in. So, back in Mark chapter two, we're told of a story where a lame man is brought by his friends on a pallet, and Jesus is moved by their faith, especially because they dig a hole in the roof and lower him through down to the beginning. It's a famous story you can find in Luke chapter two, uh, verse one, and and it's it's just a great tail, right, of the hole. I can imagine the, the mud sprinkling down because the, the roofs in Galilee were all made of sticks and of earth, so it'd be easy to dig through and lower the man down. And then he says to the man, you know, take up your pallet and walk. He says, your sins are forgiven first. And then take up your pallet and walk. Luke loves his story, and Luke tells the story the same way except for one anachronism, or I would call one Gentilism. He says that they remove the tiles from the roof and lower him down through. You see, if you're living in Macedonia, your roof has tiles. If you're living in the Galilee, your roof has mud. But he adjusts the story just enough so that Greek-speaking Gentile people could understand what he's saying. In the next chapter of this gospel, in Luke chapter 11, uh, both Matthew and Luke remember a showdown between Jesus and Pharisees. 
Although I want to remind you that Jesus did not come to attack his religion. Rather, he came to correct what had gone wrong or what is very human about our tendency to take anything and to mess up a good thing, our tendency to lose our way, our tendency uh, to go down rabbit trails. And so Jesus actually dines with a Pharisee, which reveals that he honors the Pharisee and he's honored by the Pharisee. Meals were very important. You didn't just eat uh, with anyone. You would confer your status when you ate with them and you certainly wouldn't eat with an enemy. But while he's at dinner, he does condemn the behavior of some of them. And the way that Luke remembers the story, he also includes lawyers. Matthew doesn't do this. Matthew just says Pharisees. Uh, but Luke, in Luke chapter 11 with the 45th verse, this is what he remembers. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And he said, woe to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not lift a finger to ease them. Point I'm trying to make is that lawyers quite possibly is a device for Luke to communicate to his Greek-speaking Gentile audience what had gone wrong with the religion of Jesus. Not all of it, what some people had done, which was to devalue something that was beautiful and to turn it more into a contract. Well, another clue that Luke may be using the word lawyer to suggest that this is not a good guy is that he tests the teacher. So, um, he calls Jesus teacher, and teacher in our world is a big honor. I come from a family of teachers. In fact, my daddy was a ninth grade biology teacher in Bessemer, Alabama, which means when I walk the streets of Birmingham and I look like my dad, every once in a while, someone will stop me and say, are you Rufus Webster's kid? And I'll say, yes, I know exactly where they're going because they'll say, well, your daddy was the best teacher I ever had at any level of education, which thrills me to think that daddy, as a ninth grade biology teacher, had an impact on someone who's been to law school, right? Uh, so teachers, teachers deserve our honor and teachers do receive our honor. But the way that Luke's gospel tells the story, it's just no honor. There's no honor in called, calling Jesus a teacher, but rather an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. Now, read Luke's gospel as a whole. The better address is not teacher, but Lord. And it's a test, right? He goes to test the teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer says. Now, I'm fond of reminding my congregation at St. Luke's that the Greek language is better than our English language because it's nuanced and they have many words for things, like many words for love, not just the word love. They also have tenses of words that are that are delicate. And so the word do in this, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is in a tense that suggests something that you only do once. When I do premarital counseling, I will walk the kids through the ceremony and I will say, we don't say I do as part of our marriage vows, but rather I will, because I do is a short-term word. I will is a long-haul word, and we might do something once. I do is just a check box, right? But our religion is never that. It's a walk with God. Before COVID, back behind our church, we have a little day school in our in our church, and back Back before the COVID days, we had an ice cream truck that would usually show up on Thursdays, and I would always wear my clerical collar on Thursday because if he saw that I was a preacher, he'd give me a free bomb pop. He just would. Matter of fact, I could give anybody a clerical collar, and he would give out free ice cream even to a fake preacher. And he was a nice guy, but the reality is, is I really didn't have a relationship with the ice cream man. I mean, they, he was back there to sell bomb pops and to sell ice cream cones and to make money. And so I'm worried sometimes that we 
devalue our religion to the point where we think our, our walk with God is sort of like the ice cream man. We put in our prayers and we put in our clean noses and we put in our best behavior and then God will dispense little blessings along the way and will owe us heaven when we die. When scripture never says that, never says anything remotely like that. These days I've been working on the book of Genesis in the Hebrew language and I've run across something that's absolutely thrilling to me. It's Genesis chapter 2 in that story of creation where God sees that it's not good for the man, the human, to be alone. It's not good for Adam, whose name means earth, to be alone. So in the garden, he makes a helper for him. And and the the King James is wonderful. It calls, calls Eve a help meet, which unfortunately for women uh, in successive centuries, right, I've always been treated sort of like the sidekick, like Tonto in the story, someone who's sort of second rate or, or comes second in this one. That's not the word at all. It's virtually untranslatable into English, but the Hebrew word is etzer, and it's a military word, and it's most often used in the Psalms. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes into the hills. From where is my help to come? My help comes even from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It's a military word, which means that God will fight for us at Ser. It's a military word, which also means that we're willing to fight for someone and willing to die for someone. And let's remember the story of the Gospels where God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. This is the love that God wants for God's children, which is passion and sacrifice and willingness to do anything to go to the mat for each other. And that's very different than a checked box. Well, Jesus evades the trick with a question of his own, even appealing to his ego. What is written in the law? What do you read there? What do you read there is a key question When I take groups to Israel, I like to take them to a place called Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene was from. It's the the far western uh, part of the ark where Jesus did his gospel ministry in the Galilee. So it's it's the farthest to the west of those little towns on the shore of the lake. And around 2009, 2010, they fully uncovered and, and interpreted, if you will, a first century synagogue, which was thrilling because they hadn't had one of these before. There is a synagogue in Capernaum, but it covers up the one where Jesus would have preached with a third or fourth century structure that's important because it's late Roman, can't bust it up, but you can't get up under there uh, to see where Jesus might have taught. And then there are also in the region some synagogues from the second century and the third century, but not anything from the land or the world of Jesus until now. And what's really cool about this is we hoped that the that the gospels weren't anachronisms, if you will. We hoped that they had the same sort of synagogue building, the same sort of formal uh, place of worship that you would find in later centuries. And so this Magdala synagogue completely confirms that all of this is absolutely true. Jesus prayed there. Jesus read the law there. And then as you start spinning out the world of Jesus in the presence of these synagogues, you realize that you had high literacy rates in these little villages because people had to read in order to worship. They had to read the stories that many, many people were able to read on the Sabbath day, the the stories of the law. They knew the Bible in, in deep, deep and important ways. And they would need people like learned people of the law, the people that Luke calls lawyers, to interpret it for them. So the lawyer answers the question as as only a lawyer would with the combination known to 
all practicing Jewish people then and to this very day. It's a combination of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. It is the summary of the law. Someone tried to back Jesus into a corner, said, what is the greatest of the laws? And he said, there are two, they're these, but I've got my own story. We have an annual jazz concert at St. Luke's that began with a sermon. Uh, Gosh, it's been so many years ago, I can't even remember, more than 10. We had a wonderful sermon from a man named Dan Matthews, who was, the at the time, the rector of Trinity Wall Street in New York. And he had an amazing analogy, and the analogy is jazz music. Jazz music is new every night it's played. It's a different song every time you play it. It's free form. It's in the moment. I'm fascinated by one of the the greatest jazz albums of all time in terms of sales and also terms of people covering the songs. It's an album called Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. And what's cool about Kind of Blue is it's an improv album, and yet it's so beautiful. People will cover songs that were made up in the moment at the time. However, jazz is not only freeform. There has to be structure. There has to be bones in order for us to play. So as Dan Matthews pointed out, jazz has really two principles. One would be key, so like B flat, you have to play it in a certain key. And then the two, the other one would be tempo to keep everybody at the, on the same time and in the same key. And then everything in the middle, you just pick up your horn and you play it. You play it in your way. Jazz is in the middle. Well, life is in the middle as well. God makes us with different hopes and different dreams and different talents and different abilities. All we have to do is love God and love our neighbor and pick up our horn and play. And for this reason, we have jazz music in our church once a year, and it is truly wonderful because jazz is a lot like faith in the way that Jesus teaches it here. Well, if the lawyer had left it there, we wouldn't have the parable, but he couldn't do it. He wanting to justify himself, he asked one final question, and it goes like this. Who is my neighbor? That's what the text says, but we could also say it another way. Then who do I love? Or better yet, who doesn't deserve my love? It's the answer to this question with a radical parable about a Samaritan who stops, moved with pity, and helps a man on the road. And that's where we'll go next week with this remarkable earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Thanks, friends. Let's keep it going.